Right now, people that are age 55 plus are the fastest growing group on Facebook. They're also the most responsive group on Facebook. And that's because people that are not digital natives, they go much slower in their newsfeed and they consume much more information. So I do think Facebook presents a real opportunity for organizations that have older direct mail donor files to boost their files. Helping nonprofit marketers, fundraisers, and leaders like you grow their revenue and impact so they can do more good in the world. This is the Build Good Podcast. Now here's your host, Mike Dirksen. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Build Good Podcast, the show for people like you who work hard to build a better world for all of us. If you've worked in fundraising for some time, you'll know that direct mail still enjoys some of the best response rates of any communications channel. Now, because we're living in a digital world, it's sometimes tempting to think of direct mail as outdated, uh, with nothing new to offer to today's audiences. You and I hear that all the time. Well, if you still rely on the mailbox to connect with your donors and to grow your revenue, you know that that's not the case. And you'll also know that technology, which is the factor that is supposedly killing direct mail and all things print, actually helps make direct mail work better now than ever before. And so today on the show, we're talking to Dan Saunders about ways you can boost your direct mail response by adding digital channels to your fundraising campaigns. Dan is the director of nonprofit marketing at Conrad Direct, a family-owned direct marketing firm. As a list broker, he's written direct mail and digital media plans, which have helped nonprofits acquire nearly a million donors for organizations in wide ranges of markets and sizes. Now, he also hosts the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast, which is dedicated to advocating for an unsiloed approach to fundraising. Dan is going to break down four different multi-channel techniques which you can use today to help enhance your direct mail fundraising. Here's my conversation with Dan Saunders. Dan, you work with nonprofits every day to make sure they get the most out of their direct response efforts. So thank you for coming on the show today to to talk about ways that nonprofit marketers can better engage their donors by using technology to support direct mail. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. I've been looking forward to our conversation. You're going to walk us through four multi-channel techniques that, that we can employ alongside our direct mail program. Uh, but before we get into that, I know that at Conrad Direct, uh, you guys often work with large donor lists. But I want to make sure that our audience knows this stuff isn't only for the big guys, right? Like everyone can test these tools and techniques. Is that right, Dan? Oh, absolutely. And and what I really like about this technique of pairing up um, a digital or emerging channel with direct mail is that uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's best suited for small to mid-sized organizations that may not have a lot of bandwidth. So um, many organizations have a direct mail program, but it may be hard to have, say, a dedicated acquisition and retention program for uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today, whether it's Facebook or texting or email. And this way, you can take your existing direct mail program and just add these layers onto it and try to amplify an already proven and established channel. And that's why, in some ways, I think 
uh, the techniques we're going to talk about today are perfectly suited for small organizations because they require minimal bandwidth and they don't necessarily require setting up an entirely new program. It's just adding on and trying to supplement something that you already have in the works. Well, let's let's get right into it. The, the first way to boost our direct mail is by using Facebook code targeting. What is Facebook code targeting and, and how does it work? So Facebook code targeting means that um, you can send a file or uh, upload a file to Facebook with any um, amount of, of information, uh, whether it's phone numbers, or email addresses, and certainly USPS addresses are part of that. And anybody that has a Facebook page that is um, doing some boosted posts or doing some advertising uh, would have the ability to upload a mail file of prospects or existing donors that you're already mailing. And what Facebook will do through their algorithm is they will they'll match those addresses to existing Facebook users. They don't tell you who they match or what percentage that they match. Uh, they used to provide some of that information. But what Facebook will then do is they will uh, determine through their algorithm the best way to, um, to allocate that money and to target users most likely to interact with your content based on their prior activity. How big does our list need to be for this to start to make sense? There doesn't have to necessarily be any minimum size. You know, in fact, y- you can try it with any with any size file. Um, there is a certain point where you want to make sure that uh, you're getting some sort of, of decent sample. But I-, I would say personally, any organization that is mailing a thousand names, um, if if we're talking about some organizations which are uh, local or smaller. Um, can do this and uh, A-B test whether they get a lift. Obviously, if you have more names to test, um, the more confident you're going to be able to be in the read. But I definitely wouldn't um, discourage anybody with a smaller file from doing this either um, because Facebook will simply match what you give them and then uh, the way you determine whether or not the co-targeting boosted your direct mail is to look at the group that you didn't send uh, through Facebook's ad manager versus the group that you did and see if it provided a lift to your direct mail. So we're going to upload our mailing list to Facebook. Facebook is going to try to match that uh, to the donors who are on Facebook, and they're going to serve them with a piece of content. And uh, what kind of content do do we want to show our donors here? Well, that's a really great question, and it brings me to a very important point, is that um, like any other test you would do in the mail or with mailing lists, you don't want to look at it as a one-time test. So ideally, you want to do this a few times with a few different pieces of content and try, if you have a a video which tells some really emotionally resonant stories about people your organization has helped, or uh, a static ad, or an e-book, or something like that. There's any number of approaches you can test. But one of the things that's really exciting about Facebook co-targeting, since we're primarily focusing on small to mid-sized organizations, is that you can simply boost a piece of content or a post from your page, which has already proven to get interactions. And um, the best litmus test that I usually use for that is looking at the comments, the quality of the conversation it generates, and the number of shares, since shares obviously amplify the number of people that a post will reach. The the best way to ensure that something is going to be seen and is going to get the donor's attention is to use something that's already had a proven ability to do that. So you could really use 
any type of content, and I would encourage as much testing as possible. But if you have something that's really proven, that's shown to get a lot of uh, attention and interaction, that's always going to be your best bet because the name of the game is to put something out there that's going to capture the donor's attention while they're going through their newsfeed. Do we want to serve, uh, do we want to do this co-targeting and do we want to serve our donors with, with the piece of content before they're about to get a letter from us in the mail or, or during that time or even after? What is the best strategy here? My preferred strategy is actually to do a combination of both. So um, if you have a mail piece that's going out, if you start putting your co-targeted content out there two weeks or so before the mail piece hits, this gives the reader um, an opportunity to learn about your organization or to really start thinking about your cause or your mission before the mail piece arrives. You want to look at this as a way to introduce yourself to the donor. So I look at the Facebook co-targeting ad as that's your opening handshake. And then when your mail piece arrives, that's your elevator pitch. So you're really just trying to get them to pay attention to your organization, to have it come to the, the top of what I call their, their mental funnel. So they're thinking about it. And then when the mail piece arrives, they're going to instantly recognize your organization because they just saw your ad or interacted with a piece of content. But actually, I do recommend that you allow your ads to uh, to linger for a week to two weeks after the mail piece is going to arrive because, as we know, Direct mail has a way of lingering. It sits on people's kitchen tables. They get to it when they have a chance. Maybe they don't go through their mail till the weekend. So this way, you're giving them an opportunity to also see something and recall the mail after it actually arrives in their home. So um, you don't necessarily need a separate piece of content for those periods of time, but I think it's most effective if you lead them into getting the mail piece beforehand and you also leave, it, um, leave the ad up a little while after the mail piece arrives. So they have a chance to come back to it if they see something and then they recognize that they got something in the mail. So if we're running, let's say we're running a homeless shelter, right? And it's winter and we put up this post on Facebook about somebody who's maybe homeless for the first time and it's performing really well. There's a lot of interaction and we've got this campaign coming up to maybe provide a safe bed for the night. That's the offer to the donor. So we might actually use that same post that's already been performing well. We might use that for a Facebook co-targeting. A few days later, they get a piece in the mail asking them to provide uh, a safe, warm you know, bed for the night for this person. Is that what we're talking about? Absolutely. So you start getting them to, to think about and um, relate to the fact and empathize with the fact that there are so many homeless people who, are, um, who, who need beds who are, who are at risk of being stuck in the elements, and they start thinking about that, and then all of a sudden the mail piece comes in, in their mail, and they then can use that as the vehicle to help address the problem. So, yes, very much getting them to, to care about the issue and to really think about it. And, you know, recognition, if you have any organizations who do consistently have a presence on television uh, for their activities, that brand name ID and that recognition, it's not something we talk a lot about in the nonprofit sector, but considering how busy everyone's lives are, it really is a crucial part of determining what mail people do respond to. And when they see a powerful ad and they really start to, to think about the issue in your organization bef- uh, beforehand, 
it's going to give you a leg up when that mail piece arrives um, in terms of if they're going to open it and internalize your message and, and consider responding to it because they're going to have some degree of familiarity beforehand. So if we've never done Facebook co-targeting before and, and we're going to consider this, if we have a list, say anywhere between 1,000 to, to maybe 10,000 names in, in that range, what kind of budget should we be thinking about to test it out? That's a great question, and one of the advantages of doing this in-house, if you have the ability to do that, is you don't have budget minimums that a lot of third-party vendors will set. If you really are limited in budget, this is great because you can control the amount of, of risk. Generally speaking, most uh, companies that will do this for you will charge anywhere between a five and $10,000 minimum, but if you're talking about uh, a list with 1,000 to 10,000 donors, my personal opinion is if you're testing in the $2,000 or $2,500 range, that's sufficient to cover that amount of names. Because the important thing to recognize with Facebook is they're going to direct those money and direct that money and direct the impressions to the people who they recognize as being most likely to, to respond to that ad. And in a lot of cases, that means that even if you split your file in half uh, for an A-B test, maybe 10% of those people will end up seeing the majority of the ads because those are going to be the, the most um, active. Um, you know, it's really like the 80-20 rule that 20% of the people on Facebook are going to generate 80% of the activity. So think about it like that. So in that sense, you do hit a point um, of diminishing returns at some point where if you're just pouring money into uh, a relatively small amount of, uh, of donors, where you don't need more money to have adequate saturation, you really are just going to be feeding the same ads to the same people over and over again. So you just you want to make sure you're spending enough that you can adequately saturate um, the, the number of people that you want to serve ads to. But more money isn't necessarily always better in that situation. And if you're talking about um, a file with the types of sizes that we're talking about here, 1,000 to 10,000 donors, I think if you were to allocate $2,000, $2,500 for that, I think you're going to be in great shape for that size file. Dan, what kind of lift have you seen using Facebook co-targeting? The, the best success stories I've, I've encountered have been uh, 20 to 30% lifts um, in the mail. Now, in talking about the lift, um, a really important thing to point out, especially if, if you've never done this before, is that in all likelihood, the Facebook ads are not going to raise a lot of money. So there's some concern in the beginning that we often run into where organizations are concerned about um, attribution and uh, if somebody makes a donation to the Facebook ad, how do you account for that? Most people are not going to do that, especially if that's not the call to action. And uh, a call to action that does have a direct call to donate probably is not going to generate the type of uh, interaction numbers that you want. So in most cases, the, the tangible return that you would see from an A-B test would be in the lift that's provided to your direct mail. Um, it should be viewed as a test, which means you should count on going and testing different types of copy, different types of ad, uh, because like any other test, it may not work on the first time around and you may just need a different approach. But you definitely have to do it a few times before you figure out whether it is or is not going to be something that's viable to lift your direct mail for uh, your particular organization. It's important not to allow our preconceived notions about Facebook to, to deter us from, from doing this type of test because right now, people that are age 55 plus 
are the fastest-growing group on Facebook. They're also the most responsive group on Facebook, and that's because um, people that are not digital natives, they go much slower in their newsfeed. Um, I'm not, tra- not trying to pick on them. It's just the reality of not having necessarily grown up um, with digital technology. They go much slower, and they consume much more information. So I do think Facebook presents a real opportunity for organizations that have older direct mail donor files to boost their file. So the first uh, technique we can try is Facebook co-targeting. The second thing that we can try is uh, text to support direct mail. So this is where we're going to be sending a text message to our donors. And Dan, I'm assuming this is mostly going to our house list. Yes, certainly for the first go around uh, in the beginning, this is going to be something that you're going to focus on your house file because that's going to be, those are going to be the names where you're most likely to have cell phone numbers, and how I like to explain um, text messaging to organizations that have never tried it is imagine an email with a 90% open rate. I mean, think about your own activity when we get a text on our phone. You're looking at and you're reading just about every one, even the things that don't necessarily interest you, and that dynamic is certainly not going to last forever, but that's what makes this such an exciting time for nonprofits to test organ uh, test. Uh, text market uh, text text messages as a way to uh, to lead into their direct mail. Are we using a, a text message to to actually uh, prepare uh, our donors for the ask, or are we using it to make the ask? How how are we using it in a way that is most effective? Well, just like how we were talking about with Facebook ads, the context for how people are using the medium is very important. So uh, there certainly are some organizations which have had a lot of success for a long time now using text messages as a way to generate um, emergency donations. And unless you're in a very unique situation, chances are most donors are not going to respond well if you text them just asking for money because you have such a limited amount of real estate. You don't necessarily have a lot of space to tell a story. Really, the best way that I recommend using text messages is just as a friendly, hey, we have our annual appeal or membership renewal or our capital campaign, which is on its way out to you. It should arrive in the next few days. Let us know if you have any questions at all. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Have a great day. Something very friendly, casual, that's non-intrusive, that's not asking anything of the donor. You're just kind of planting that seed in their mind that something important is going to be coming in the mail, and uh, especially if it's a, it's a critical critical campaign at the end of the year or a capital campaign or something like that where you might want to highlight, hey, this is something that's really important that's going to come from us. We just want to give you a heads up. Are we using a, a software to send these texts or are we manually typing out texts to, uh, to a s- select file of our donor list? Software certainly does exist for this. Um, and depending on where you're sending the text from, you have to certainly check what the laws are regarding um, manual text but versus using software and sending something automated. But if it's an instance where it's a small organization and you have interns or entry-level employees that can, uh, can send a few hundred or a few thousand, depending what the number of text messages are, the, the key really is making it seem as personal and authentic as possible. So in some ways, I think manual texting is actually better, but if you're using an automated approach, that's fine. You just don't want it to sound like an automated, mass-marketed approach. But certainly, if you're on a limited budget or you have limited bandwidth to make those kinds of investments, 
having a person sending out the text is absolutely fine. It really um, just comes down to uh, the size of the organization and your ability to make investments. So when we're sending out texts and a donor replies, it is crucially important that we have somebody who can answer their concerns, correct? Absolutely. So again, the key is authenticity and having a contextual conversation. So in the context of text messages, if one of your friends or family sends you a text and you don't respond, they're going to get annoyed at you, right? Right. So it's just like that. The, the worst thing you want to do is to have donors responding with questions, which is an excellent behavior, by the way. If somebody is that interested that they're sending back either um, a comment, say, hey, I can't wait to see it, or asking you questions, that it comes across as a one-way conversation. So absolutely, critically important that if you're going to use texting as a medium, make sure the texts go either back to a person or to a place where you can respond to them in a, um, in a very quick manner because you want it to mimic an actual conversation that they would be having with somebody else that was texting them. Dan, we, we love using text messages uh, because of what you mentioned. There's nearly 100% open rate. Uh, it's great, uh, especially as donors want a more authentic experience, which we know they do. Uh, we've had a lot of success using text messages, even for thank you, short thank you videos that the executive director will just record on their iPhone and then text it to a donor. Along with that also comes the fact that we need to start building in our mailing list, we need to start soliciting cell phone numbers from our donors. And one of the ways that, that we've started to do that using direct mail is to actually, uh, we just sent out a campaign where it said, hey, can you provide these, uh, these gifts uh, for these youth? And if you give us your cell phone number, we're going to send you a picture on the day that we're handing these things out to, uh, to the people that you've helped. Uh, have you seen any approaches like that that are working really well? That's actually the first instance where I've heard it being streamlined and integrated like that, but I think that's an excellent approach. I'm a big advocate of unsiloed fundraising where we take information from uh, from one channel and we use it to boost another and we provide a consistent experience. So I think that's just an awesome example of asking for a cell phone number and providing something of immediate value. That's a really good rule of thumb, I find, when you're asking for information is, you have to position it in the same way of when you ask for a donation, that you're not just asking for information so you can ask for more money through another channel. You're providing something of value. And clearly, sending the donor a picture of uh, a child or a veteran, depending on your cause, that has been helped by their donation is an excellent way to, um, to hammer home the value proposition of uh, making a donation and also just make the donor feel good consistently about the work they're doing and see visual proof of it. And um, I do love the idea of uh, text thank yous because it has that immediacy to it. You can incorporate videos or images. But even if you're just sending a follow-up in the same way we were talking about with uh, Facebook co-targeting, after the mail piece arrives, if you're just sending a follow-up and say, hey, our calendar just went out, our capital campaign just went out, our renewal just went out. Just want to make sure that you got it. See if you have any questions. You're just giving the donor another chance to pay attention to your mail piece, and you're just reminding them that something important came out. And again, maybe they put it to the side, they'll see your text, they'll go back to it. Um, 
you know, we, we have to remember that modern fundraising really is about maintaining the donor's attention and staying at the top of that mental funnel. And texting is a great way to do that after the mail piece goes out as well. But certainly, if you can incorporate it into a, a, text, uh, a thank you program and um, provide visual proof of their impact, I think that's a tremendous use of the medium. The third technique that, that we can test is actually using email. Now, I, I, I don't know a single person or organization that is not actively already using email, but how can we use it better and, and in a more effective way to actually boost our direct response uh, rates? Well, this is where breaking down the silos that exist within, with, within organizations really comes into play, because you're right, at this point, Just about every organization on the planet is using email to some degree, but I'm consistently surprised how many organizations are out there where the email team doesn't talk to the direct mail team. There's not a lot of coordination there. Um, a lot of times, donors, when they supply it, when they respond via direct mail, they may give their email address, so they're getting messages from both, and they may not be um, consistent or complementary of each other. So this is an opportunity... And the first thing that's required is to put everybody in the same room and talk about uh, your acquisition and, and retention strategy and, and coordinate your approach. So in the same way we were talking about using text message to, lean in, uh, to lead into a direct mail piece arriving, you can do the exact same thing with email. After the fact, what's really appealing about using email in a coordinated approach with direct mail is you can certainly do a friendly, soft follow-up saying, hey, we just want to make sure that you got this. But with email, you can also provide value and break down some friction for the donor by saying, hey, some of our donors have indicated that they prefer to respond through a web donation. So we're giving you an ability to do that if, you, if it's easier for you to respond through email. And you could do any number of follow-ups, especially if it's um, a really critical fundraising campaign, like an end-of-year effort. You can just keep sending out those follow-ups, but it has to be something unique so you're not wearing down the donor's attention, and it has to, uh, the key is to really offer them something of value, not necessarily physical value, but it just could be emotional or, or mental value or, or knowledge or uh, a time saver, like I was saying with giving them, hey, we're, giving, we're doing you a favor by giving you a chance to reply to this offer via email. Just make sure that you're always offering something of value or something that's going to make the donor's life easier. But certainly a very appealing aspect of using email in combination with direct mail is that you can do virtually unlimited follow-ups at minimal cost, and that can just increase the shelf life of your direct mail that much longer. We've started uh, using email before sending out a direct mail campaign, especially for really small organizations. So we just sent out an email where the executive director took a selfie of herself at the post office where she's dropping all these letters in the mailbox. And uh, the letters actually contained a little handcrafted gift by some of the beneficiaries. And we sent it out and we just said, hey, we just put something in the mail for you. Please be on the lookout for it. In a day or two, it'll arrive in your mailbox. It's a gift from us. Make sure that you open it. I, I think that's, that's tremendous because it's really connecting the experience. It's making it real. And um, it, it almost creates a level of anticipation. Hey, they went through all the trouble of taking this picture and uh, they're you know, sending something in the mail to me. I think when, when you make something real like that to the donor, that's really powerful technique. So um, that is, uh, that, that 
that's something that I think is extremely effective uh, when you can not just give them a heads up that the mail piece is arriving, but create a level of anticipation and demonstrate, hey, this is something really important that they're doing. I think that's just a great use of the medium. Have you seen email work well to support live events? Uh, it's something that, that we often do, especially uh, if it's a, a larger annual event and a lot of donors are invited. Uh, we'll sometimes send out an email from the CEO uh, like a minute before the event starts and like the subject line will be, you know, I'm walking on stage. And uh, if you couldn't make it out tonight, but you still want to support uh, uh, this thing that we're raising cru crucial funds for, you can still do so online. Have you seen that kind of thing work well? Oh, absolutely. I've seen that most uh, employed by political campaigns. And, and one piece of advice I have for organizations, regardless of the marketplace, regardless of the size of the organization, if you look to what the big organizations do or the ones that have mass marketing um, or high levels of name ID, whether it's in the United States or in Canada, look at what those organizations are doing and the techniques that they're doing, because chances are they've been A-B tested And they're operating on such a scale that they can't afford to have something that isn't going to be optimal. And that's certainly something that we see a lot of candidates do, not just on the presidential level, but also uh, senatorial and congressional candidates here in the states. We see them, they'll send out an email, sometimes not even just to supporters, but also to prospect lists as well that, hey, I'm about to go on stage for a rally, and uh, sorry if you're not able to be here in person. But, you know, please continue, uh, consider supporting our cause. It makes it real and it drives home and connects the experience, kind of in the same way that you were talking about before with, with taking a picture of you putting a piece of mail in the mailbox. It just makes it real and it connects the experience through multiple mediums. So absolutely, if you have an annual gala or some sort of awards banquet uh, where you um, – use email as a way to connect with donors who may not be there. I think that's tremendous. And at the same time, even if you have donors who are there, a lot of organizations will put out place cards that'll have a chance to make a supplemental gift. You know, how many people lose those cards? This just gives you an opportunity even to connect with people who were at the event. Now, the fourth technique we're going to talk about is a little bit different, and it's using online lead generation to direct mail. So everything we've been talking about right now is starting with direct mail and then using digital uh, to play a supporting role. But here we're actually relying on, we're starting with digital and we're relying on digital to bring people into our direct mail stream. Can you uh, explain this a little bit and how it works? So this um, is also part of the idea of connecting the silos and, and breaking down the walls between your, your, your fundraising channels and also finding a way to get more use out of something that you're already doing. So a lot of organizations do online lead generation. They may have petitions or surveys. They may um, offer e-books. And they're capturing email addresses, and they're, they're putting those people into their email acquisition program. And I actually kind of stumbled across this 10 years ago. I had a client that was doing email acquisition, and they decided just as a research and development test to append postal addresses and get some demographic information to find out who are these people that we're not finding in the mail that want to sign up for our email newsletter. And what we found was, very surprisingly... Um, they were a little bit younger than our direct mail donor demographic. But when I say younger, I, 
might be by 10 years. Maybe the average age of the email um, sign-up person was 55 instead of the average age of the donor being 65. So we tested putting those names into the mail for acquisition, and it worked. And I've seen a number of times since then over the years of examples of doing online lead generation, but asking for USPS information. Um, you can test uh, requiring it. You can test having it be an optional optional field. But what happens is, is these are people that are effectively telling you, I want you to send me something in the mail. They're voluntarily telling you that, that they want to communicate with your organization through multiple channels, and that's a really valuable behavior. You know, something else that I learned through a client that did uh, an experiment uh, almost about 10 years ago also is just the physical act of having um, a donor's email address, even if you're not sending them anything, increases their lifetime value because these people are raising their hands saying, I want to communicate with your organization through multiple channels. So even if they're not donating through both, if somebody is, is displaying that behavior, that's a really valuable indicator that they're somebody that um, is potentially interested in becoming a donor. The one caveat I'll add is that, in my experience, online-generated leads that you put in the mail, they have a shorter shelf life than direct mail-generated leads. So it's ideal if you can um, get that information and, and put them in the mail within 30 to 60 days. They also are a little bit more issue-dependent, so you want to really try to, as best you can, to connect the issue that they're responding to online to the acquisition piece that they're going to get in the mail. So if we're talking on a really practical level, let's let's just say we're uh, maybe an environmental organization, and we've got a petition out there uh, asking people to sign it um, because there's some piece of policy that maybe we want to affect or change. Uh, so people go on our website, they sign a petition. It's at that point that we would also ask them for their physical mailing address. And if they provide that to us, we would follow up pretty soon after that with, are we following up with, with maybe an offer to contribute to, uh, to, to further help the cause and, and to move that policy, uh, those efforts to change that policy along? Is that what we're talking about? Yes, and ideally it would be part of an acquisition mailing that you're already doing. If it connects with the original issue that they signed a petition on, that's uh, probably even better. But that's exactly how it would work. One of the other pieces of this is that asking for more information will decrease the number of leads that you get in, which is why a lot of online departments don't necessarily want to do this. But I've seen that the, um, I've seen the decrease is not as steep as you would think, maybe 10 to 15 percent. And what ends up happening is because you're applying that extra level of friction, you're actually getting a better qualified prospect because they're giving more information to you. So certainly A-B test that. Um, asking for USPS versus not. But in most cases, the, the drop-off will not be as big as you would expect. And the more information-intensive that the online lead is, the better those people should convert through the mail. So if you have a, a longer petition where you have to go below the fold and it does take a couple minutes or an ebook, things where the, the donor is consuming a lot of information when they're uh, providing their information and you're generating the lead, 
those things tend to carry over really well to the direct to direct mail. Dan, I I, I love that you've uh, that you've shared so much information with us. Just to recap, uh, the four different things that nonprofit marketers and fundraisers can start testing today uh, to boost response rates and to see if it will help their direct mail campaigns is number one is Facebook co-targeting, just uploading your list to Facebook and serving uh, people who are getting your piece of mail with a piece of content online. Number two. Two is text and really using text in a very personal um, manner that makes them feel like they're getting a piece of communication from you to them. Number three, email. Um, this is priming the donor ahead of the, uh, the, the direct mail campaign as well as serving them with the actual offer of the campaign that you've got running. And number four is using online leads that you've generated uh, and bringing those people into your direct mail stream and following up with them uh, in their mailbox. Uh, Dan, uh, this, is, this is great. I, I love how small uh, organizations can test all of these with very little budget and effort. Uh, they're all fairly nimble to implement. Uh, they don't require you know a lot of red tape or, or hoops to jump through. And they all provide uh, a way more personal and uh, authentic experience, which is what our donors are looking for. Uh, so before we go, Dan, we ask every guest on our show if there's an encouragement you can provide for marketers and fundraisers who are listening to this show, you know, people who are working in the trenches every day, connecting with donors and trying to build a, a better world for all of us. First of all, thank you so much for having me on. I really have enjoyed this. And, and my advice to um, people who work at small organizations is, to use the size of your organization to your advantage. Don't look at it as a competitive disadvantage. I love talking to people that work at small nonprofits because they find that they're so dedicated and hardworking because you really have to be to be in an environment where you have um, minimal budget and uh, minimal bandwidth. I find that small to mid-sized organizations are usually uh, surprisingly much more equipped to do this than larger ones. There's less red tape. There's less people you have to run it through. There's not as much concern about budget coordination and who gets credit for what donation. Um, a lot of this stuff tends to be very turnkey at the smaller organizations. So you can get out ahead of the curve, and you can test a lot of these things while the, the larger organizations and maybe the more brand-name organizations are still playing catch-up because there's just more involved to implement them um, on their level. As, as you said, Mike, and I love the way that you put this, that Everything is moving in a direction of wanting to provide the donor with a more personal experience, a more authentic experience. And we see this in the way that brands um, communicate with us now. Everything is personalized to what you're interested in, and it's um, being made to seem more, like, more natural communication, the way that you talk to friends and family. And small organizations are able to um, provide those types of personal relationships at scale in a way that it's difficult for larger organizations or multifaceted organizations to do. So that's your competitive advantage, that you're able to offer that personal, uh, customized experience that they're just not going to get at a larger organization. Then your size is a competitive advantage because you're able to do the things well that we're seeing are really defining marketing and fundraising right now. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. I, I'm, I'm grateful for you and, and the work you're doing. Thanks again.
Well, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed what Dan had to say and that you can start testing some of these techniques in your organization. Thank you for listening and for joining me on the Build Good podcast brought to you by Build Good. You can always reach me at mike at buildgood.org. If you like the show and you think it would help other fundraisers and nonprofit marketers like you, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Mike Dirksen, cheering you on as you build good in the world.